Welcome to Extraordinary, my retelling of the story of my almost rape and violent stabbing in 2018 from my perspective, as well as from the perspectives of some of my closest friends and family. My hope is that this story and the stories of the extraordinary people who helped me along the way will inspire a better understanding of the effects of extreme violence, PTSD, and recovery on individuals and the people supporting them. Thank you so much for listening. And you can follow along on our Instagram account, extraordinary.podcast, to see the photos, videos, and helpful resources that correspond to the content of every episode. And please, 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 if you are a survivor or someone suffering from the effects of sexual assault, violence, or PTSD, take care while listening. So this is the very last episode um, of the podcast, and in this episode, I want to just kind of do a rundown of everything that happened, you know, like, just kind of everything that happened in the last episode, reactions to that, Um, and then I have clips from my mom and Meg and Andrew um, so I hope you guys have liked it <laughs> so far. I know there's a lot, um, a lot of themes within the podcast and some are harder to listen to than others, but I so appreciate everyone for having listened to all of this. It's, it's a significant time, um, investment. So thank you. Um, and I hope this episode is, is meaningful to you guys. It's a little bit more just kind of in real time where I'm at now and what this story and these last few years have meant to me. Um, so stay tuned. So I want to start with, um, at the close of the last episode, which was the trial, I talked about learning what was in the letter that I had waited, um, I think at that point, two and a half years to know. And it it was some more answers around uh, how this happened, um, just in the sense that I had wondered for so long if if Rashad had just been walking by my apartment and saw a light on and decided to come in, um, or if he had been, you know, walking on the sidewalk earlier that day and, and seen me and decided that day that he wanted to, you know, attack me or, or rape me, or if it had been something that he had been planning for a long time. And from that letter, I got that answer, which was that it was something that he had been planning for a long time. And I think there were pieces in the evidence that also, you know, that was shared in, during the trial that also spoke to that, that he, you know, waited outside my apartment for five hours um, and just cased the apartment for five hours before attempting to enter. Um, also that he had 
a backpack on him that was full of clothes, like changes of clothes that he left stashed outside. Um, I think to me that says that he knew that he may need a change of clothing, which that could be because of blood. That could be because he's running away. Um, but it just to me shows that he intended to interact with me in some way. And, you know, of his own admission, he had done this before to another woman. I don't know if she's alive. I don't know who she is or if she's okay. Um, I think that will probably remain a mystery. Um, and he admitted to having watched me and I don't know how long, but for quite some time. So the connection between the two of us in Surprise, Arizona, him having lived there and me having visited there in 2011, and then him that year moving to Los Angeles. Um, it makes me really scared, if I'm being honest. I think that piece to me is the the scariest piece, and it's, I think, the thing that's lasted with me the longest and is the hardest to overcome, I think, that I, that someone could have been tracking me or watching me. You know, I, I moved to two or three different apartments within that time. I wasn't always living in that apartment on Fifth Street, so he would have really had to intentionally seek me out and watch what I was doing and I just don't if that's really what happened it scares me that it scares me a lot that someone could be so committed that they track you for seven years and then and all the while knowing that they wanted to harm you you know he would have been 18 if we would have crossed paths at any point in surprise arizona and because he was 25 when he attacked me so it just for someone so young to be that obsessive and dangerous and and also just to know that there could have been nights where I was sitting on my couch and he was watching me. It's, it's chilling to think about. And I still am very private about my space. I'm very protective of my home and my location. You know, I tend to not post on Instagram where I'm at when I'm there because I don't want anyone to be able to look at my Instagram content and see how to find me. Um, I think I'll probably forever wonder if there's any way for anyone to be watching me from outside of any building that I'm in. 
and I'm I'm certainly more guarded than I started off as with strangers and and even with people I know I think I'm just I'm afraid to to shine in front of strangers or show myself because I don't want to stand out which is a shame because I really like to shine and just hearing myself say that out loud makes me really sad um but I think that letter gave me peace in the sense that I had answers and then also you know it it amplified a sense of uneasiness that I had always felt So like I said, the format of this episode is going to be a little bit different. I'm going to go through, there are a few themes that I think I kind of want to talk through in this episode, and I'm going to bring back clips from my mom and Meg and Andrew um, to kind of illustrate these clips and, or these themes and and why I think they're important. Um, And the first thing I want to talk about just because the last episode was the trial episode is um, the trial and leading up to that and the outcome. I'm so glad they caught him because I would hate to see anybody else go through what you went through. And we believed, I believed, um, and I think you believed that if he were to get let out, he would do this again. Hurt yes. someone else again, right? Mm-hmm. You now know because of the letter and some of the things that we have learned mm-hmm. that he has done it before mm-hmm. and that he certainly would do it again. Yeah, I think he would. So I'm gonna. I'm just going to be watching for... I've got myself signed up for something that I'll get notified if anything like a parole hearing is coming up or anything like that. And I will be there if that happens because this, this just can't, he just cannot get out. He cannot get out. I mean, rape is awful. I was glad you fought and I'm just glad you didn't get killed. I'm sad that your fingers are like that and sad that you had to go through it at all. I can't believe um, how good of a job. When I was talking earlier about the ripple effect on family and friends and work, when one person does a crime like that and also the police, did such a good job. I mean, they they caught him very quickly. They were very good um, at communicating with us, not to the extent that I wanted, because I didn't I didn't understand the 
the criminal justice system well enough to understand that things take forever to move um, and all the, all the little loopholes that are in there for someone to try to get out of being punished or having consequences for what they've done. I didn't understand all of that, but despite all that, the many, many police officers that worked on this case, many, many, and the district attorney and all the people that worked on the case, I mean, so much goes into that. I, I don't know. I don't want people to have to suffer, but I also know that the reality of that not happening for you to have to live with the idea that this man is out there, that he may have vengeance on his mind, that any fucking number of things even doesn't even matter, but like all the different places your mind can go as to what, what, what this means for you, like is unacceptable. So the fact that that's kind of off the table is like number one priority. Um, in terms of the, how that all went, I think also like, I was going to say, I don't wish bad things upon anybody, but then hearing about how, in addition to what he actually did, hearing the way he was in jail, the things he was saying, the, the ability for him to put on a show and like that sort of an act, act like a crazy person or do whatever he could to kind of get out of this situation that he created for himself and also could like prolong the trauma that you are experiencing because you couldn't get a fucking court date out of it because he was being the way he was being, you know, like justice was not being served and the way that it was all playing out and the different circumstances that kept coming up with the, with the lawyers and the, uh, whether or not they were going to take a plea or like there's different possible outcomes that were, that were thrown around was just like, makes you, I don't think I had a lot of faith in the justice system anyway, but it was just like seeing it kind of play out and hearing it play out. was just like, Oh, this is really disappointing to see how something that was so fucking unforgivably awful that has happened to you and the shit show and the the all the dumb stuff that needs to happen for something just to be done about it was just was disappointing and then you multiply that by the thousands and thousands of people that have to go through this and the and the court systems and everything else is just like it's just really sad it's so sad that and like and there are, there are a whole other people who don't who just don't have the patience or don't have the support system to be able to like to to push forward and get or through money. it or money like. right and, and and so they just have to like take it on the chin and accept the fact that this is that the justice isn't going to be served or someone's not going to listen to them or that their, their trauma doesn't matter. And it's, that's really sad to, to hear. So like the happiness piece of, 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 of it is like, it sucks the way the, the amount of time it took, the number of corners it had to take and turns it had to take, I guess, like, 
it all it's all sucks, but at least it ended somewhere that we can kind of breathe and say, okay, it went the way it should have gone um, eventually. One thing to add to Andrew's point about all of the victims that don't get to make it through that process um, for a myriad of reasons was something that Meg and I talked about, which was even the circumstances that contributed to me even feeling comfortable enough to talk about it. I got struck by lightning by this happening and struck by lightning by surviving. I also think I got struck by lightning by the circumstances being what they are that I feel as safe as I do talking about it Mm -hmm. based on public perception and the way that it will be received. If that makes sense. It does. It does. And I don't think we've ever talked about that. So it's a lot to wrap my head around because it makes me so sad for Exactly. When women are raped and they say, well, what was she wearing? When there's a question that you can see anyone ever asking. Yeah. Is it my fault? Mm -hmm. It makes it 3,000 times scarier to share. Yeah. So like I said, I think that that is a really important point that... Um, not a lot of women find themselves in a circumstance where there's absolutely no way that a stranger could twist the story to try to make it their fault. Um, and that's not to say that any women have any responsibility in being sexually assaulted, raped, or attacked. They don't, um... But I think I, the reason that I felt so pulled to speak out was because it was a culmination of circumstances that surrounded there being very little for people to blame me for, for this. And I feel so lucky for that. I mean, even in court, I had to testify multiple times to that my windows were locked. What if they hadn't? Would that mean that he had a reason to come in? You know, the things that we get blamed for are mind-blowing. So another theme I want to talk about is fear. And I think... Over the years, I've gotten more and more sensitive to inducing fear in people by telling them the story. I, I feel really guilty when I tell people the story and they tell me that it makes them feel afraid because I don't want, I don't want to be a catalyst for spreading that fear um, when that fear shouldn't exist in the first place, if that makes sense. But it's a catch-22 because I, as much as I would like to 
believe that I'm so strong that I can take all of that fear and protect everyone from it and shield them from it um, and swallow it and not talk about it and handle it myself. I, I know from experience that I, I can't. I tried. Um, and I think, you know, for the people who were around me, they experienced extreme amounts of fear after this happened because you never think that this will happen to you and you never think that this will happen to your daughter and this will never happen to someone that you love and it shouldn't and hopefully it never ever does um but unfortunately there are those of us that it does happen to and there unfortunately are people that have to be close to that fear with you you know your friends and your family and there's a huge impact on people not just victims but support people as well I was moving in with my boyfriend and um, we had a couple of our mutual friends helping me move and uh, my boyfriend's mom called us and said uh, this woman was just attacked in her home in Santa Monica that it sounds too dangerous don't move and you know we were like okay that happens in cities every day it's sad for her but obviously we're gonna continue our move and um, we looked it up and uh, I remember it was your cross streets and you live in a, you lived in a small apartment complex. Um, but the article we read said a young woman in her 20, in her early twenties. Right. <laughs> and we were in our early thirties. So we were like, okay, swoosh, not Lee. And then kept moving on, you know, like we had to pack up the car. We had to do a couple of loads that night. And I think we kind of didn't give, give it a second thought until people had started texting you, texting friends we knew who would be in contact with you and we weren't hearing back. And so it was kind of like um, this needling in the back of our minds, like, we know it's not Lee, but that is her complex and she's not responding, but you're not always very quick to respond. So, it, you know, it was kind of this back and forth. And so we're doing one of the drives over to our new place in Santa Monica and a mutual friend gets a text saying it, it was Lee she's okay and it just was like um I don't know it, I think it felt to all of us like like uh oh my god <laughs> I think it felt like a like a lightning strike of how could this be someone we know and one of the articles we we saw, uh, one of the police officers on the scene said, um, she's really tough. We hope she makes it. So it sounded like very life and death. And 
you know, we were driving, it was, it's only a two mile distance between our old house and the new house. And, and I got lost. <laughs> I, 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 it was like my brain turned off and we were all just, I don't know, gripping the seats, like not knowing what to do or who to reach out to or, or how to find out if you were going to be okay. And, and we got to the house and I just remember running in and screaming. It was Lee and, and just sobbing to, to my boyfriend because it, those kind of things, they, they happen, but they don't happen to people you know until it does. And then it just, it kind of, I think, twists your view permanently on I don't know how to word it, like how accessible you are to to danger, to like being that person in the news. I think the surrealness didn't really kick in until later, I don't think, because at the time it was just such visible tangible trauma that we saw like you coming out of surgery and like seeing someone you love looking the way that you did was so like upsetting but visceral and real and it was just like you know there's there's police involved there's there's questions there's there's shit going down that you're high on fucking morphing or whatever and like not necessarily like coherent <laughs> It became surreal later to, like, once the dust had settled a little bit, like a few days later, sort of knowing that, like, I think at the quiet points where there wasn't much we could do, like, like we weren't visiting you that night or we weren't seeing you or there was no new news or there was nothing else to kind of grip onto. And it was just kind of sitting there, like, in the, in the quiet being like, did that really happen this is this is happening this is a thing that like it doesn't feel like it's supposed to feel or i don't know um i don't know what it's supposed to feel like but it was just that feeling of like now what i think there was also the there was sort of like just disbelief that this whole like ground shaking thing had kind of happened but then we're also just like sitting in our apartment and watching RuPaul's Drag Race, like not really engaged in anything, but trying to engage in stuff and just being like, I don't know. And then there's also like nightmares um, that I had about it and like also not feeling safe um, in my own apartment, which I hadn't felt before because uh, we live on like a third floor and like, um, you know, you need to buzz to get into the building and it was like not the most secure thing in the world, but it was like gave you a sense of something. Um, but then that all was like every noise I would hear, I would think it was something like, because if it was possible for you, it could be possible for us. And I don't know. Um, I think, I mean, the night, like the nightmare side of things that was kind of like twofold because it was, it was one nightmares about sort of being in the vicinity seeing it happening to you and not being able to do anything about it so like but then there was other nightmares that were like it was happening to me in my space now too if that makes sense so yeah concern for you in one in one dream and then concern for myself in another dream i guess but yeah i don't i don't really know what the 
what the origin for, for a lot of that, that stuff was other than just like making you kind of rethink what's possible or, or what you, I don't know, take for granted in a way, like you just assume that you're going to be safe or you assume that, you know, everything has a rhythm in your life and it's always going to follow that rhythm. And then like, it just gets disrupted and it's like devastating in so many different ways. Locking front doors, windows locked when you're going to bed. I lock my bedroom door. I've always been paranoid about being attacked and after it happened to someone that I knew really well, um, the, the fear became so overwhelming that if I was in our new house alone, I'd stand in this one specific corner where I felt like no one could come from behind and I would stand there full body shaking until my boyfriend would show up. And I felt crazy, but I also couldn't move from that spot. It was just so scary. And it, it, your attack elevated my fear to a almost like non-functioning level for a while because it was like confirming the thing I've been afraid of my whole life. That somebody can come get you. And not just come get you, but when you're in the safest place in the world, your own bed, that's where you were attacked. It's like all bets are off. We're not safe anywhere as women. That's what it felt like. A man can come in and overpower me and I, I like, it's gonna happen. It just felt inevitable. So when I talk about fear, that, that is, is what I mean. Um, and I think throughout the years and throughout this process um I've at points felt very responsible for inciting that fear in people and felt like it was something I was doing to them and even through the course of um, recording and sharing this podcast, you know, the majority of the feedback that I've received has been supportive and, and positive. Um, you know, from, I've gotten feedback from friends and family, which I love you guys. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs> All of my friends and family, my, you know, I, I see your messages and my mom shares your messages and, you know, I'm, I'm going to really try to focus after the podcast is over and, and get back to all of you. Um, but thank you. And, you know, I see, I see the messages of support. I also, you know, have had the nurses from the hospital, um, that actually braided my hair, um, and were with me, uh, throughout my experience in the ER and in my recovery, in the hospital afterward that I've asked if they could share 
the podcast um, with other nurses um, just to show on the other side what the experience is like, which I didn't anticipate that. And that makes me so happy if, if I can help, you know, like show gratitude and then also illuminate, you know, the, the experience of that, because I think what all of the nurses wanted for me was, was to keep me alive and and keep me feeling safe. Um, also friends of mine that work as social workers, um, have asked if they, if I wouldn't mind if they share the podcast with other social workers, I think, especially, especially when it comes to the, um, PTSD and, emotional recovery, uh, episodes and addiction and, you know, depression and isolation and all those different behaviors that can come from an experience like this. Um, which makes me so happy (laughs) too, that maybe the podcast could be helpful that way, but I have gotten negative feedback, um, from people saying, that I, and not survivors, but from people saying that I have upset them or made them feel afraid because now in their homes or in their apartments that they feel unsafe. And what I want to say to, to anyone who, who is feeling that way or any survivor who is encountering that kind of feedback from people to stay quiet because you're upsetting people with what happened to you. It's, it's so permeative to feel responsible for the way the, you know, none of these stories are lighthearted and fun, but they're also not stories that we chose you know, we, we own them, but they, they weren't stories that we chose. They chose us. And I know from experience that from recording this podcast, I've told people it feels each time I share a part of, of the story, like an exorcism, it, it feels like I'm finally able to let it go and let it out of my bones and muscles and, you know, circulating blood, you know, pumping through my heart. I, it's exiting my body for the very first time from being objective and putting these pieces into a story and interviewing people that were there and, you know, seeing the evidence, seeing how many people were in the ER with me in those pictures, seeing them cut off my shirt. Because I think, you know, in Andrew's clip when he said, and it doesn't feel like it's supposed to, and I don't know how it's supposed to feel. Like I, I really understand what he's saying because like you said, like we all said, you know, you don't they ever imagine that this is going to happen to you or to someone that you love. And, you know, you, you wake up the next morning and you breathe in and out and you brush your teeth 
and the sun moves through the sky and the days continue to happen in such a normal way under such abnormal circumstances that it it does start to feel so surreal and you you know for me i i needed to, to do this to put everything in order and say it out loud and not be the only keeper of the details of what this was like this the entirety of this story so i just i i want to say to any survivors if anyone's telling you to stop talking just tell them to fuck off you know tell them to stop listening because there are many people out there that want to hear your story that want to hear all of the, the you know the the good bits the bad bits the the strong pieces the empowering pieces the you know all that all the stuff that's motivational and inspirational but they also want to hear when you failed i do when you felt like you couldn't go on anymore you know those those moments that's where the humanity is and that's where the magic is you know i i do have empathy and i have, i do if it i hate the idea of my friend meg standing in her apartment afraid or my friend andrew having nightmares that someone was coming to get him but i respect their courage so much that they faced this with me and what i hope comes of that is i mean there are a few things and one i'll talk about a little later but the first one i want to say is is i i think what i would love to come out of that fear is instead of terror um that it could happen to you um preparedness you know don't be afraid be prepared and if you are mentally prepared for something like this to happen to you then you don't need to be afraid and like we've talked about in the podcast a lot you you don't know how you'll react in this type of situation situation um no one does. You know, I've talked to, you know, Marines. I've talked to, you know, soldiers that have come back from combat. I've talked to the police officers. I've talked to other survivors. And you, as much training as you can have in what to do in a situation like this, until it's life and death, you just don't know. But you you can prepare yourself in case it does do you still get scared like do you get scared at night if you hear a sound or do you guys worry about that um I wouldn't say that there's like a paranoia but if there is a sound or if there is the potential of something 
I think the reaction to it is a bit different in that. Yeah, should we talk weapons? Do you guys have weapons in the house? Do you need we, have a, we have a samurai sword under the bed. Oh, <laughs> We've been so that's a, that's that is an actual go-to move. Um, but I think it's more. I don't know. I hadn't really thought about it until you asked. But I, I think it's more of a like, take it seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, don't just sit there and go like, oh, I'm sure it's nothing. Like. Because I think the moments that you have, even if it is nothing, even if you spend a minute going and grabbing a knife or doing something that you might think is overly paranoid or past you might have thought was overly paranoid. Yeah, even if you make... think you'll feel silly right. after you do it. I'm more than happy to feel silly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like at the start of the pandemic, I was going out in a mask and gloves and being like, you know, full spaceman. It's like, well, I prefer to be that guy than being the guy that got COVID. Um, yeah but it's it's knowing the importance of like also like you being basically asleep when this when this all happened and knowing what you had to experience and even your ability to fight when you're on the defensive like being able to see a moment where it's like hey maybe that was something maybe it wasn't but let's be on the defensive about this let's do what we need to do and turn on a fucking light and grab a knife and kind of be a be a force in this and not not just like oh my god i'm just gonna pull the head cover over my head and hope that nothing happens yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um but i wouldn't say there's like an over like a huge amount of paranoia where we're where we're like overthinking things but i think enough of like a sort of a, a an acknowledgement of the importance of taking it seriously i think um, that's the right thing to and do. your ability to impact the situation too which you did (laughs) you know this is another conversation that we've had something that came after the attack was you fighting back and you you know being able to fight him off it kind of changed the narrative of if I always had this thing like if someone breaks in and tries to attack me I know I'm gonna freeze I'm gonna freeze they're going to rape me. They're going to kill me. You, they're going to do whatever they want. And I won't fight back. How can I? I'm a woman. They're so much bigger than me. And then after you fought off this guy who was six something. Six two. I think. Six two. And had clearly been preparing for this. It gave us this like, hold on, wait. We can fight back. Like that gives us a chance. It's not just like making the attacker more angry where he's going to hurt you more. And it changed the narrative. Not immediately because immediately I was too scared to even think. But eventually it changed it to like this kind of empowered. And it was other girlfriends and I talking about this where we all had this kind of light bulb moment of like, you fighting him kind of gave us like a little more peace about like being attacked because that means we could fight too if it happened to us and it had never crossed our minds before that and that is what i want i want anyone who's afraid 
that this could happen to them and anyone who's never even thought about it happening to them to hear this story and think I can fight back too. I can fight back. I, I'm strong enough that if someone tries to take my power away from me, that I will fucking fight back. You know? That all the things we're taught, at least as women, over the years to give him what he wants and wait for someone to come and save you, which is always in every movie, every single movie, always a man comes to save you. Always. That's what I was waiting for that night in my room. The inevitable inevitable moment where a man comes to save you. And when I realized that it was never going to happen and that I had to save myself by fighting, by attacking, by refusing, by becoming animal, becoming violent, becoming a killer myself. I would, you know, I, I was imagining in that night, in the fight, that I would have killed him if he had continued to stab me with the knife. I would have found a way to kill him if I could have, if he had not run away. And that scared him. You know, I I talk with female friends a lot about what's depicted as an acceptable situation for a woman to become that protective and that violent and that ferocious. And it's almost always, I would say 99.9% of the time, through the lens of protecting someone else, especially a child. And what I would love to change is the social acceptance of that women are terrifying. Women are ferocious. Women feel rage. And women fight to the death to protect themselves. So I just want to run through quickly some ways that I think um, people can can prepare themselves for something like this. Um, Because now I train in boxing. I didn't before the attack. I do now. Um, For me, learning to box is mostly an outlet for my feelings. Um, I know that there are tools within boxing that will always serve me to feel strong and to feel knowledgeable and capable. And I think that also helps psychologically um, in feeling prepared. Um, What I doubt is that if I were to ever be attacked, that it would be as nose-to-nose as a... 
fist to fist as a boxing match. Um, I've taken a couple self-defense classes and I think anything that you can learn that would help you escape from a hold, um, in like a, in like a wrestling sense or like a grappling sense from my perspective would be helpful, but self-defense is really finding a way to get free so that you can run away and get help. Um, and for me, when it comes to physicality, what I'm most interested in socializing with, with women, especially, and young women is self-offense, meaning that we learn and we teach each other techniques and we talk about in a way that feels supportive and acceptable that if someone comes into our space, we have the right to attack them and that we should and can attack them and that we can inflict damage. I, I think for me, where I see the most value is in a mental preparedness in what I mean by that is thinking through scenarios and taking yourself to the next level that you would not allow yourself in an everyday situation. And what I mean by that is sometimes when I'm in, and this is hypervigilance, so don't learn this, but <laughs> if you are ever in the mindset to practice something like this, that being preparedness, mental preparedness for an attack um, or for anyone to try to take your power away from you, um, I sometimes, if I'm in a situation where I can feel something escalating, let's say in like a restaurant or a bar in a public place, and there's someone nearby who's heightened, I'll think through scenarios like if they come over here and they pass a certain threshold, if they come within five feet and are threatening, let's say 10 feet and are threatening to me or any of the people that I'm with, what am I willing to do? What am I prepared to do? And of course, de-escalate is always what you try to do. But as a woman or someone who's smaller, um, I think through what are the tools that I have around me? What are the resources that I have around me? If there's a glass bottle, that's a weapon. Break it off on the table and wield it as a weapon. Because if someone is attacking you, the stakes are high. You know, the stakes are your life. And I think the biggest piece of advice I can give is something that Andrew talked about, which is believing it and being willing to look silly. Being will willing to laugh at yourself or to have other people laugh at you for taking something seriously. Because I think that is the most nefarious thing that plagues all of us is not believing 
our instincts and staying in a state of disbelief that we wish this wasn't happening or we don't want it to happen or that we don't want to look silly. So I think thinking through scenarios and what you're willing to do and pushing yourself and actively taking a part in getting someone away from you, in making them get away from you, in valuing your space and your safety. No one has the right to do that. No one has the right to touch you. And vocalize it, say it, and then be willing to take action. Um, another theme I wanted to talk about was, you know, I think with in talking about fear, we talk about the ripple effect. Um, but in this podcast, I've mostly been focused on that, you know, the first layer of support that I received um, from my friends and my family. But I wanted to talk about there are support people for the support people. And I wanted to shine really quickly a light on that. It's been very, very helpful for both you and I um, and your brothers um, and your dad to have friends and family that like helped boost us up or make sure we were okay as we, as we went through all this because you, you had, you know, a terrible time and, you had a lot of amazing friends that helped you through it. When something like this happens, I think you really realize the ripple effect of um, what a crime does to the victim. Obviously, is front and center and the most important. It's terrible. But how many people it impacts, I don't know if, if the court system really realizes that um but you it's family that you that you have to you need all of these people to support you through something like this and I know people go through um losing their children which thank god isn't something we went through but um you need people to family to support you and help you and pick up the slack and help and figure out help you figure things out like logistics and you need your friends to support you and you need your work to support you. So when you say something like, I'm going to California and I don't know when I'm going to be back, that's a big thing to say when you have a lot of responsibility. All these people just step up to the plate and that's what we had. We had a huge ripple effect of support um, from everybody who loves you and wanted to help. hung up the phone I started crying and I was like I can't I cannot do this anymore and I was saying this to my boyfriend and of course I was coming there was no question it was just like pure exhaustion and he packed my bag and he's like you gotta you know you just you just have to you just have to keep doing it and it was just this like I don't know this like really encouraging like 
he helped me pack it. You know, he got my stuff ready for me. He took care of my dog and was like, just go. Like, you're going to be fine. Just hearing him go like, no, you have to. I don't know. It, it kind of like boosted it for the next time where it was like, just do it. Just fucking do it. Keep showing up. Like, if this is what's keeping Lee alive, of course I would keep doing it. I remember during that time calling one of my sisters and, you know, kind of updating her on the situation. And she immediately went to work and found like eight treatment centers, like within an hour of LA that had mm -hmm. opening, you know, and it was like this whole list for us to go through. And another sister, I think she found like like advocacy programs for like victims of violent crime. And it was like, you were, you know, you were kind of this like rock thrown in the middle of the lake. And then all these waves were what affected us. So it became such a focal point for me that my family would call me and go, how's Lee? You know, it was like this kind of ripple effect where it, it really, it, you know, it wasn't just us. But I think, do you feel like it was a gift to have Vincent there with you? Like to have like someone to lean on and someone to chat with and not be sitting there alone or not be sitting there without like your source of comfort and someone to talk it through with? Uh, definitely, definitely. I think it it put a lot of our issues into perspective pretty quickly. I mean, it didn't obviously didn't just mean like, oh, everything was fixed between us. But I think it was like, okay, we don't need to, whatever we whatever the issue was that day. Like, I was completely forgotten about now. It was just like we just need to focus on Lee, um, and yeah, having having each other to be able to talk to about those things was was incredibly important because i mean we like everyone else involved i don't think um or everyone else who was around didn't have like a close emotional relationship with so being able to talk to you know we didn't have that kind of relationship and so if i was alone in that space i, I probably would have been like um it probably would be much harder to deal with because yeah, those times where, it, like, like I mentioned earlier, like when we're sitting at home alone in the apartment, or like oh, having a nightmare, or or just thinking about how fucking surreal the whole situation is, being able to bounce that back off someone and check in with someone who's experiencing it the same way. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't say how it would have gone without that, but I, it made me, I feel like it was definitely a blessing. <laughs> So I know you've heard some of those clips before, but I just wanted to take a chance to express my gratitude um, to the support people for the support people, because I know that they couldn't have done it without you. Um, you know, my mom was doing dialysis with my grandma four days a week, and it took a lot for her to be away, and she needed her sisters and she needed our family. And Meg was able to lean into her family um, for support and for guidance and to help 
find answers and to her boyfriend um, to prop her up when she thought she couldn't do it anymore. And, you know, Andrew and his husband were able to lean into each other in the hospital um, when things were really scary and things were uncertain. So, you know, there's these people that, that are not voiced in the podcast that are such a huge part of the story. And I want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart to them. And one thing I want to say about just the process of doing the podcast um, and podcasting in general, I, I've really loved working through this as a medium because I have complete control. I record, I edit, I release, I promote, um, and control is a huge factor <laughs> in my life, especially as it pertains to this story. And I think the idea of handing off a bunch of recordings and then asking someone else to string it together just sounded like an impossibility. So having the ability to just pick up um, a microphone and start recording and all it takes is the time for me to say it is pretty incredible. And, you know, it has been trying because it's to record, I have to be in a room where all the windows are closed and there's no people and I'm recording. I had three episodes recorded when I launched the podcast in December and I did that because I knew that if I didn't do it, there would, I would never like and hold myself accountable with high stakes that I would be a perfectionist about it and I would never let it out. But, you know, so I've been recording these and editing them in real time, um, each week and I have a full-time job. So I do that on nights and on weekends and it's, it's been incredibly rewarding, like I said, but it's also not been easy. So I'm, I'm looking forward to having more time to dedicate to focusing on the, the extraordinary podcast Instagram account. And because I have all these things that I've wanted to share each week with each episode, but it just got to be too much. And I was pushing myself, you know, like I can push myself pretty hard, but I was getting to a point where I was pushing myself too hard. Um, so I think, you know, coming out of this, I'm going to take, take a beat and take a minute off, um, to celebrate, uh, the podcasts all coming together. And, um, then, you know, I'm going to be focusing a little bit more on the Instagram account and sharing some resources and videos and, and pieces of the, the evidence and pictures and things like that, like pictures of the seventies Airbnb, um, uh, just things that I had hoped to share along the way, but just needed to maintain my sanity a little bit and save for after the podcast is wrapped. I think another theme that has come out of the podcast 
for me is time. Um, the amount of time I've spent uh, living in this story and waiting for its outcome. And I mean, Rashad is a real man who is really in prison in L.A. County. And he could, I you know, I, he could get out. Um, so really it's never over, but I, I realized in recording the podcast that I, I feel like I'm grieving a little bit, um, some time that has been lost, some years that have been lost. And I, I'm single, I live by myself, and I don't have any kids, and I'm about to turn 37, and I sometimes think about that, you know, when I was attacked, I was 32, and these years that I've watched my peers um, buy houses and have babies and get married, I've felt like a bystander um, and felt outside because I've been so focused on this, on this story and trying to get the trial to come to fruition and anxious about what that outcome would be also just like realizing things don't happen like they do on tv which i know is naive but i also think no one realizes that like beginning of like the attack to him being sentenced was three years that's wild i mean that's three years that your life was essentially on hold that you were kind of like, it was like you had two bosses, you know, one at work and one in the court system telling you don't have an Instagram, don't post anything about the trial, they could use it against you, you know, the defense attorney is going to comb through your social media and find anything provocative and use that against you. Like, I remember feeling so like devastated of what, so because she's beautiful because she posted a photo of her looking pretty they're gonna tell her that maybe you asked for this i think about all the different the different ways in which the the different types of conversations we had in the years leading up to the final decision and like you not like all the different advice you were given from different angles and like not being on social media and making sure that you're not painted a certain way by by a defense or like all these different sort of things dimensions in which you have to think about this thing was so upsetting because it's just like not only did i have to suffer through that i now have to like this thing now needs to get stretched and drawn out even further where i can't even do the things that i just want to do and i have to 
be continuously reminded and think about my behavior and in some ways continue to be a victim of this person for way longer than the night of like i'm now living in a in, in a completely different circumstance than i would have chosen for myself um and that's it's hard because you've got it you're trying to heal from the fucking event itself you're trying to get justice and you're also trying to make sure that all these other different opinions and, and advice that you're being given is is also boxes are getting ticked and you don't want to make a wrong move because you don't want to set something off in the wrong direction whatever like it's it's a lot for the fucking brain as well as i gotta get a job i gotta make sure i'm paying this rent and like on top of all of it so like i I don't i don't know how you did (laughs) quite (laughs) frank like i mean it certainly at moments was not elegant You know, I think I, I am mourning the loss of that time because our lives are precious and I, I don't want to feel behind. And I think that's another thing that is one of the costs of something like this is years of your life. Um, that could have been spent focused on something else. And I, you know, I'm, I'm going into this next year with a genuine um, contentedness for where I'm at in my life and acceptance. Because like I said, that releasing the podcast has given me something that I didn't think I could find that I feel exercised (laughs) Um, and I feel like there's a finite amount of space you know inside you that you can hold and the story has taken up so much space that there wasn't room for really anything else there There wasn't really room for even joy. You know, I made something, one of my goals last year to, uh, to remember to feel joy, (laughs) but I, I kind of couldn't because there just wasn't enough space. And with each of these episodes, it feels like I've like let out a little bit of air and with each one there's a little bit more space and I've found myself thinking about new things and not ruminating in pieces of the story because now I'm sure of them. You know, I think when, when I was really struggling with, with what was real and struggling with you know, certain functions of my mind not not working in a way to connect me to reality and connect me to myself and felt, you know, like like I was really going to 
um, lose my mind and, and go crazy the way that I'd seen it depicted in movies. You know, I, I didn't know that those brain functions could shut off. Um, so I was, I was really lost and scared. And I think another theme that I want to talk through is, um, forgiveness and I think when I talked about you know the relationship with my ex and how at that period at that junction of my recovery how he was um giving giving an alternate version of the past to try to maneuver out of an uncomfortable situation. I think that is one of the stickier things that has stuck with me, which is a a doubt that my reality is real, almost like that movie Inception where you have to go deep into someone's subconscious to plant a thought and then it turns into a virus and it touches every thought, waking thought. If It felt like my mind was so raw and open after the attack that planting that seed that maybe what you know isn't real, that stayed with me. And going through the actions to put together this story has helped me cement to myself that my memories and my feelings and my thoughts and the way that I remember the story happening is in fact incredibly real. And it's, you know, I I really had been on a shaky foundation um, for a long time because of that. And I think that kind of brings me into another theme of the podcast I wanted to talk about, which is um, anger and forgiveness. Um, A lot of people wonder if I'm angry at Rashad for what he did. And I wouldn't lie to you. I really wouldn't. But I I don't feel angry at him. And I guess I really don't know why. You know, I don't I don't I don't want to be around him. And I don't want him to be free to make choices like this again and hurt more people. But I really don't feel angry at him. It's more of a I want to protect myself and protect others from him is more the feeling that I feel. Even if I really try to tap into anger, I I can't. 
I just don't think that it's there. Which, maybe that's unhealthy. But the way I look at it is, if I held on to a feeling of anger that he chose to do this to me, he he can't feel the effects of my anger. Only I can feel them. You know, and I, I think there's a, a saying that I really love that, you know, anger and, and being angry and being bitter or being jealous or any of these feelings is really swallowing poison and, and hoping that your enemy feels the pain of it. And they don't. You know, Rashad doesn't care if I'm angry at him. It means nothing. It only would hurt me. It would only hold me in a space that I don't want to be. It only would distract me or deter me um, or poison me from the inside to stay angry at him. Um, and, you know, I think he is a, is a guy who, he is a sick guy. I think he is a very hurt individual, and I think he made an active choice to hurt other people, and I hold him responsible for that, Um, but I'm not actively angry with him, no. Um, and my ex, I, I spent a long time being angry at him, really, really angry. And I think, you know, the other thing about anger is it's almost like a refusal to accept that things are the way they are or that someone is the way who they are and at least it was for me that I was angry because it wasn't fair I was angry because if something bad happens to you you're supposed to fall into the loving arms of the people you love the most and it wasn't fair and why and you know I was trapped in there for so long and it was such a really scary place um and I had a conversation once with a friend who was asking me why I was so angry at my ex and I told him why and he said do you think that he'll ever explain to you why that happened And I said, no. And he said, do you think he'll ever apologize to you for that happening? And I said, no. And he said, well, then why do you spend any more time thinking about it? And I, that meant a lot to me because it was, 
eye-opening to that, what I needed to free myself from that anger was acceptance. Acceptance that this had happened. Acceptance that this is where I find myself. And acceptance that I'm going to have to move forward in a different direction. And, you know, similarly, I, I don't want to be around my ex because he broke a boundary with me that I, I can't uncross or that he can't uncross. And we're not in each other's lives. But that's not to say that I don't have, you know, a, a, a care and a hope for him that he moves through the, the rest of his life and experiences immense joy and happiness. You know, that's, of course I want that. You know, I, I, I hope that my sharing that piece of the story only shows that I wanted to shine a light on the complexities of a relationship. It's a very incredibly difficult thing to navigate. And again, I, I have a deep um, care that, that I will always have for my ex. And I do wish, you know, him nothing but the most happiness. I think what I want people to most take away from that is just to have the courage to walk in your integrity and not look at anything as a victimless crime. You know, that telling a different story and twisting the truth and trying to get out of something isn't a victimless crime. You know, it, like I said, it can plant a seed and it can cause a lot of unintended damage. And I think that is one of my greatest hopes that people take away from this is just if you're faced with a difficult situation and you can choose to try to find a back door and sneak out of it or you can choose to do something that you may feel consequences for but that you know is right um choose the latter And I've been thinking a lot about where I was at this time last year, at least around a year ago. I mean, in January of 2021, the trial came to a close and Rashad was sentenced um, January 6th. And I immediately launched into trying to figure out how I was going to tell the story. Was I going to try to write a book? Was I going to, you know, 
I do like an op-ed, you know, trying to figure out, am I going to try to, you know, put together in interviews with, um, you know, experts in the field. I, I had no idea how I was going to do this and researched and tried things and decided that I was going to do a podcast and taught myself the technology through trial and error and learned how to do it and spent the last year really uh, figuring out how to tell this story this way and gathering evidence and reaching out to the city a million times to get the evidence released and go pick it up at the police station and, you know, sift through all of these memories and all of our notes from the courts. And now with all of this coming to a close, I'm just so proud of what I did. I'm so proud. And I remember even at Christmas time, you know, three, four months ago, talking to family about my idea and that I was going to release this podcast and I wasn't sure how it was going to be received. And I was so anxious and so afraid that it wouldn't be received well. And they were so supportive and so encouraging and have listened this whole time. I love you guys. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for the encouragement. It meant so much to me that day. I needed it. And for the continued support and I, you know, just thinking about how much has changed in a year, this is, this is going to be the first time that I'm not carrying this story, you know, and I'm so excited for the next chapter. I think one of the last themes that I want to talk about is perspective, um, because that was something that I think came up um, a few times in talking about this, uh, this happening to all of us, that when something like this happens, it, it stretches your idea of what you believe is possible. Um to encapsulate a lot more. Uh, and I, it also, for me, has helped me look at things a little differently. And I want to share a clip from Andrew uh, where he talks about that. The potential threats or the things that we fear or think about it's on a day-to-day basis are, you know, a boss, a a meeting, uh, your relationship with your husband and the fight you're going to have or whatever, like those things are the things that are just immediately in front of you that you know that you have to somehow like uh, work through or get through. And and that's part of the like ups and downs of like, yeah, but I had a nice dinner with some friends and then now I have to go and deal with this other thing that I don't like. And it's just those ups and downs and you can kind of have your perspective, I think, is like, you know, there's shitty things that happen in life, sure. Like maybe we'll get a divorce or maybe um, 
I'll lose my job or any kinds of things. These are the like, these are the things that you hear often enough or have happened to enough people that you're like somewhat anticipating, like this is, you know, part of life. Um, but something is completely, something that like that big, just kind of like coming in and being like, you thought that shit was important. Like, or you thought that this was the worst of it. Like you don't have any fucking idea. Um, and to that point, I mean, I think it like completely reframed in some ways, like those smaller things that I would just mentioned, like, and realizing how, you know, how kind of <laughs> how pointless some of it is and how, how like just gives you a different perspective on that stuff. So I can be more, um, relaxed or easygoing about certain situations because it's like this is this is this is the easy part mm -hmm. you know <laughs> like <laughs> don't you feel like that's kind of a gift out of it a little bit i do that like i'm much more able to focus on that life just isn't going to be perfect all the time and sometimes things are going to happen that i'm going to be frustrated with mm -hmm. or something's not going to go according to plan Mm -hmm. and where before that would have been a monumental obstacle that I would wrestle with and have anxiety about, I'm much more able, and I still have anxiety and have obstacles, but I'm much more able now to think through the lens of the perspective that, and I don't know if it's healthy or not. I think it is, but, like, <laughs> but that's like, this, this is small in like relation to, something big yeah you know and i mean I, I think about some of the things that we used to get together and drink and complain about our significant others hours and, and hours, hours and hours and examining about, relationships right and all these stupid things and, and like honestly so like a lot of that comes from like me, it comes from that. Like this is the most important thing in in my on my horizon right now is trying to figure out this shit with this with this particular issue or whatever. Um, but the amount of like of of analysis and passion and whatever we had around those topics was feeding them even more and making them even harder to deal <laughs> with. And like, and to the point where I'm sleeping somewhere else and I'm like, you know, we can't even have like a, a I'm too scared to even have a fight with him. But I think, and this is, I'm sort of reflecting on it now as I'm talking, but it's like, I feel like so much of where we're at now currently has come from that realization that this is, we do not need to be scared of each other. We do not need to be scared of, you know, having a conversation or just being able to like talk through stuff and come at it for, for the, you know, from a healthy, respectful place and being able to do that stuff is like, this shit's, this shit should be easy. And so, yeah, it is, it has been a gift in that sense of like, um, being okay with, things not being perfect and being okay with trying to figure things out and it's not cataclysmic it's just part of fucking life <laughs> let the cataclysmic events be cataclysmic i think i mean it it is a, i would call it a trauma in the sense of like 
a friend of a friend of mine told me uh said to me once like the worst thing that you've ever been through is the same as the worst thing i've ever been through and that didn't make any sense to me until he explained it which was basically like (laughs) (laughs) which was basically like people's like ideas of of their lives have their sort of like their scale their own scale and what they've experienced and for some people their parents getting a divorce was the most traumatic thing that's ever happened to them um and for other people uh it was um i don't know losing a parent or something like that even though those two things may not be comparable because one's alive and one isn't in their minds it's the worst it's their, it's, their their, scale. It, yeah. it's their scale and that's what they've got to that's their reference points for how they cope with things um and so it can't be a competition about who's experienced more trauma here or more trauma there it's just it just is and i think so in this um because it doesn't help anyone to say like oh well you think you've had it bad wait till you hear my story <laughs> no. like that doesn't, that doesn't get anyone anywhere um Playing a trump card of trauma is not here. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I think, so I think it was just, I would call it a trauma in the sense of like, it, it changed my scale for, for those things and me being, and, and that perspective. And I don't, I haven't experienced and I hope I don't have to, I hope no one I know has to, I hope no one in the world has to ever experience anything like that because it's fucking awful. Um, but to that end, like, I would say it changed me because once that scale changes, it changes everything in your day-to-day life, you know? Um, and not a consciously like, oh, this thing happened, so therefore now I am like this. It's just like you don't even realize it happening until years later you can kind of reflect on your journey and go like there was an inflection point there. Mm-hmm. And the small ways in which I handle things or make decisions or the way I you know, uh, react to stuff is different now. It is. And that's a, um, that's a really positive thing because outside of, like, I wouldn't have it any differently other than for you not having to suffer in the whole situation. <laughs> but, I thought it went perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> but... Yeah, I think I didn't want my life to continue going the way it was anyway. And um, things were going to change no matter what. And whichever direction, positively, negatively, um, for anyone, for myself or anyone surrounding me, like, I I didn't know where I was, where I was going with things. And I think... um, experiencing a part of this was enough to to change that scale like i said and um and it's it's just interesting to see how like i just it just feels like all the little things that can seem insignificant if i said like um the way i respond to someone in a meeting is different now because of this thing like okay great so whoop-de-doo you get some you get some better like a better interaction in the meeting but it's not that it's the that's like a that's 
a small symptomatic thing of what's really going on inside, which is, um, which is a much more peaceful place and not grabbing onto things that you don't need to grab onto or, or obsessing over things that don't need to be obsessed over. And the more and more you have these small moments and these small changes, they ladder up to something very, very different. Um, and you can actually kind of zoom out and look at your life and go, oh, I'm kind of happy with where I'm at. You know, <laughs> like, oh, shit. Oh, and I like the people who are in my life and people aren't out to get me. And, you know, every day is, you know, nice. <laughs> like, right, because when that perspective shift changes, you know, I liked that you said that it, like, it comes out in these tiny incremental ways in communication and the way you relate to other people and the way you relate to yourself and your future and your planning. And there's like that like sense of peace, I think comes from knowing where you sit on that scale. Mm. When the scale is broadened, you know, and when things are good, you're able to inhabit that space a little more comfortably. Like, you know what? Like, I don't need to worry if things are complete shit right now because I'm confident that right now in this moment that they're good yeah right this is this is this is peace this is this is as good as it's gonna get (laughs) (laughs) no but even but even like i've had people even just at a work level say things like oh you're bright and bubbly and blah 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 and it's like i would never in a million years describe myself as that i am the (laughs) dark grumpy (laughs) like cynical even i have a hard time thinking bright and bubbly (laughs) right (laughs) but i mean charismatic witty willis great qualities but thank you uh yeah that was a stretch (laughs) no but i think it was like i think outside of knowing me as in like in a total context like someone relatively new to me and me being able to make a joke or two in a meeting and not taking that meeting very seriously mm-hmm. can come across to someone as he is bright and bubbly um but she she doesn't need to know that i'm dead inside <laughs> <laughs> so this is like a piece of that realization of that earth-shattering thing that happened to you also kind of shattered things for me as well um and in nowhere near as hard a harder way but in a way that was like i guess just allowed me to start fresh in a di- in a lot of different places which i just didn't even see as a possibility before mm-hmm. um and being able to i guess function differently and more positively and interact with the world a bit differently and over time seeing positive reinforcement for being for being that way and being able to do those things and realizing that that shit that I was living in before was this kind of prison of my own making in a lot of ways and mm-hmm. now I can just exist and it's okay people often say that they find me to be very calm um which is new to me because i have never been someone that anybody has called calm but i think it has to do with what andrew's saying that after something like this happens you you view the things that come up in a normal daily routine as non-emergencies 
you know, for me, it takes a lot for me to get to a point where I'm panicking or where I'm afraid that the world is going to fall apart because there's something really powerful. Um, I think specific to my piece of this story, I think, I think there's a bit of wisdom that's earned when you come out of something like this. I think a lot of, there's a lot of, um, seeking of wisdom that I see, um, trying to, trying to fast track to these deep understandings and knowings that can only come from, um, earned experience. And, you know, I, I'm, like I said, in my mid thirties and I have a lot more wisdom to acquire through a lot of really trying life experiences that I'm sure are to come. Um, but I do think something that comes from living through something like this is, uh, earned wisdom in a way. And one of the most impactful things I think that has helped to give me a sense of perspective is the idea of peeling back layers of identity. Um, you know, I think we walk around and we define ourselves as our job, our career. We define ourselves as our interests. We define ourselves as our hobbies. We define ourselves as our families. We define ourselves as our community, you know, our town, our our relationships. Um, and to me, one of the most powerful things that's ever happened to me was as a result of this happening having those things that I held as um, tent poles of my identity uh, stripped away because and that that might sound negative like a like a loss but and then I thought as it was happening I absolutely thought this is a loss you know, each time one of those things was peeled back, I, but I think the beautiful thing that's come out of that is that I know that I still exist even when all those things are gone. And I'm not my career I'm not my relationships. I'm not my hobbies. I'm not my interests. I'm not my reputation. I'm not any of these things that can be taken away. 
you know, at, at the core of me, there's a self that no one can touch, that no one can take away. And that understanding has given me a lot of peace to know that if, if things that I feel hold me up get taken away, that I know that I can rebuild. Because he was a coward. Mm-hmm. Opposite of you. Brave. Thank you. That's what everybody thinks. Everybody. All the people that touched that case um, and all of, all of the family and friends all think you're very brave to stand up because you're you're 5'4", and initially, when I first saw him, I thought, he's huge. He is huge. He didn't look that big the last time I saw him, but he was huge the first time I saw him. But you overpowered him with strength and will and goodness. You weren't going to let that happen. Not everybody can do that. Not everybody can overpower an attacker. So it was just very lucky that you were able to. Okay, well, thank you. That's my line. Unless you had anything else you wanted to say. Um, Maybe sing. <laughs> um, I, I have been working on a new song that I thought I wanted. I just wanted to put oh, out Oh, I forgot there. to plug you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot why you were here. Yeah. <laughs> No, I'm sure I'll replay this conversation in my head later on and be like, oh man, that would have been so much smarter and more eloquent if I said it this way. Well, the beauty of it is that I'm moving at a snail's pace <laughs> in actually executing this. <laughs> um, okay, thank you for doing this. It's the last time. <gasps> Just like, don't make me sound like an asshole. I won't. she wrote that is i think we did it we did it now if i shouldn't have said anybody's names or anything you cut it out i will is there anything else you want me to cut out you listen to it and you can cut out whatever you like (laughs) (laughs) you're in charge oh i like the sound of that yes you do (laughs) all right thanks mom all right i love you honey